Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. This episode today is all about neurotransmitters. This episode, or the inspiration for this episode, is in response to an email I received from a listener in Germany. And she asked if I would plan to talk about neurotransmitters. And I said to her, I haven't planned it, but I'm very happy to put it on my list because it's really helpful for me to know what you would like to know more about so I can create content that is useful and beneficial for you. So as we talk about neurotransmitters today, one of the things I did want to say is this episode piggybacks off the previous episode, which is on neuroinflammation because there's a big overlap between what I'm going to say today about neurotransmitters and a lot of what I shared about neuroinflammation in the previous episode. So if you haven't listened to the neuroinflammation episode yet, I'd highly recommend you actually listen to that first. It's quite a long and a bit technical one. And then circle back, come here, and then listen to what I have to say about neurotransmitters. So I'm going to go straight in and just say that a healthy brain and a healthy digestive system produces healthy neurotransmitters. So when we're looking at neurotransmitter production, these are the two things that I want to be looking at optimizing. How is this person's brain health and how is this person's gut health? And then we can look at what else might need to be done, any fine tuning and tweaking. I think, and I'll say this here, is that with fatigue, recovery, and especially any sort of complex and chronic illness, the trap that people can fall into, and I have even fallen into in my own journey, is looking through too narrow a lens and focusing on test results and trying to perfect or optimize test results instead of looking at the bigger picture. And so what that means is we can look at a test result and we can say, oh, look, I've got low dopamine or, oh, look, this looks like I've got low serotonin. And then think about, well, how do I increase my dopamine and how do I increase my serotonin? And of course, maybe those are valid questions to be asking, but we want to zoom out and we want to look at the bigger picture and say, what are the biggest things that I can address right now that will have the biggest impact on all the other things? So instead of, for example, taking some 5-HTP for your serotonin or to eating more tyrosine-rich foods for your dopamine, I mean, of course, you could aim to get some more important amino acids for your diet. There's nothing wrong with that. But instead of focusing too narrowly on these markers, I think it's really important to zoom out and say, what else is going on that could be impacting the production of these neurotransmitters in the first place? I don't test neurotransmitters directly in my client base. I run the organic acids panel and the NutriVal, which has the organic acids in it. And within that, we get organic acids for neurotransmitter metabolites. So that is suggested to be an indication of levels of dopamine and serotonin. 
but I don't really tend to do anything with those results um, apart from look at the bigger picture. So it's very seldom with a client that I'll go, oh, low dopamine, we need to do something for that. Um, it's much more likely that I'll look at the bigger picture. And so that's where I'm going to start today is circling back to what I've already shared, which is when the brain is healthy and the gut is healthy, because a large amount of our neurotransmitters are actually made in the gut, then we're much more likely to have healthy neurotransmitter production. So if you've been told your neurotransmitters are low or you've had them tested and the results show some sort of imbalance, this is where you want to start. Run a stool test, see what is going on in your gut, and then also think about what does your brain need to be healthy? And that's where I said it may be helpful just to circle back to the episode I did on neuroinflammation, because obviously an inflamed brain is not going to be necessarily producing the best neurotransmitters. So what does the brain need to be healthy? Well, first of all, we need lack of inflammation. And where is inflammation coming from? Inflammation is coming from the body. And that could be to, due to the root causes. For example, there could be mold or toxins or viral infections. There could be an imbalanced gut, which is why we want the gut to be healthy. Or there could be unintegrated trauma, chronic stress, a very stressful lifestyle, nervous system dysregulation, a nervous system which is stuck on or stuck off, and that's going to have an impact on neurotransmitter production. So we want to, again, zoom out, look at the bigger picture, and ask the questions like, is there any reason why my body would be inflamed right now? Now, are there issues that need to be addressed, whether they're physical, mental, or emotional? So once we've zoomed out, we want to take away things which are potentially stressful or inflammatory to the body. And then we need to add in all the good stuff. And, and that's really so much of everything I've talked about previously on these episodes. So what does the brain need? Well, it needs oxygen. So again, you could refer to the oxygenation episode. You could think about breathing. You could think about movement. You could think about exercise. You can think about optimizing the health of your red blood cells, addressing nutrient deficiencies for things like iron B12, B6, folate, all those things which are going to help to get more oxygen into your body, around your body, and into your brain are going to be really important for a healthy brain and healthy neurotransmitter production. Then the next thing the brain needs is glucose. And this was a huge focus of the episode I did on neuroinflammation, which is restoring brain pull. So if you have a high carbohydrate diet, you feel hungry all the time, you struggle to go without a meal, you get very hangry just before meals, or you feel like you lose cognitive function and you only feel better once you've eaten something, if you would not be able to fast or go without food, these are all signs that you're not metabolically flexible and you probably want to work on supporting brain pull. And again, it's beyond the scope of this episode to go into that in more detail, but you can listen to the blood glucose episode. You can listen to the episode I did on fasting. You can listen to the episode I did on the ketogenic diet because any or all of those episodes will probably have everything that you need to support 
better brain pull. So we've talked about reducing the inflammatory environment, but we also want to be adding in things that support the anti-inflammatory environment in the body. And that's a good, healthy diet. I did an episode on eating for fatigue, so that's a good one to refer back to. But in a nutshell, I kind of like, unless somebody is a vegan or vegetarian, like a paleo diet template. So basically just whole foods and then adequate amounts of protein. But then we want to think about those nutrients which are supportive of inflammation. So polyphenols, an abundance of colorful plants, oily fish or a fish oil supplement or an algae oil supplement, making sure you get in your brain food and all your antioxidants, things like green tea, for example, as well. So we're supporting the inflammatory environment. And then exercise is good for your brain for so many different reasons. And so again, exercise is tricky for people with fatigue, but exercise does increase what is known as brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is really important for brain health. And with fatigue, there's obviously different stages of fatigue and how you approach exercise might be different depending on where you are in those stages. But my personal opinion is that it's something you train yourself out of. So obviously meeting your body where it's at and not doing more than what it can handle, but having some sort of movement routine, however big or however small, really important for you, your body, your mitochondria and your brain. So that's what your brain needs to be healthy. And so there, I guess, if you're listening to this and you have concerns about your neurotransmitters, there's a lot of homework to do in terms of listening to some of those past episodes and just thinking, you know, what, what does your brain and what does your body need? What, what needs to be added in? And don't do everything all at once. Just pick one thing at a time, make it manageable. What also needs to be taken away? What is too much? What is overwhelming? What's keeping your body in a state of distress? So that's the brain health piece. The second piece is the gut health piece. And the gut is often referred to as the second brain. A huge amount of our neurotransmitters are made in the gut. So we need a healthy gut to have a healthy brain and also to make healthy neurotransmitters and enough of them. And so here, the first thing we want to think about is um, what do we what do we need to take away? So if there are any infections that could be yeast or bacteria or parasites or just an overgrowth of commensal bacteria dysbiosis we want to address those imbalances in the gut and the gut also needs adequate amounts of fiber obviously if there are imbalances and we're trying to eat too much fiber we're probably going to get some unhelpful symptoms and we're going to know okay i increased my fiber but i'm not feeling so good that's usually a sign that there's a bacterial overgrowth that needs to be addressed first but if you're good with fiber and um, you can get in your plant-based foods, I usually recommend 20 different plants per day. So color, variety, make some of those polyphenols, make some of those maybe fermented foods if you don't have any histamine issues and um, give your body the fiber that it needs to fuel the good bacteria in your gut. And on that note, we do want to have a good balance of beneficial bacteria Maybe a probiotic could be something worth adding in here. Uh, I quite like um, Dr. Ruscio's approach to probiotics. So to do three different types, which is your soil-based organisms, your regular bifidobacteria lactobacillus, 
um, probiotic and then Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a beneficial yeast. And you can just rotate between those. So one day you take the one type, the next day you take the next type, the next day you take the third type, and then you keep that in rotation. And what some people don't know is that exercise, provided it's not too much or too intense, can be really good for your digestive health and also your stress levels, happy and healthy relationships, nervous system regulation, making time to sit and chew and eat good quality, whole, unprocessed food, single ingredients, paleolithic template those are kind of all the guidelines for digestive health. And I have done an episode on gut health. So again, a little bit more homework for you there, but you can always go back and listen to that. So to normalize our neurotransmitters, what we're actually thinking about is just the things we need to do for fatigue recovery, which is support the body. These things that I'm talking about, unfortunately, are not magical healing tools they are actually things that we should be doing just generally, whether we have a chronic condition or not. Looking after our bodies, looking after our digestive system, avoiding things which make um, inflammation in the body, balancing blood sugar, breathing well, sleeping well. All of these different things are really just things we should be doing for health. So hopefully there's nothing new there, but there may be some tweaks or adjustments or a different perspective. And so then the final thing I had on that list was also the hormetic stresses. So hormetic stresses I talked about in the neuroinflammation episode, but essentially these are small acute stresses that create a small acute inflammation in the brain that then has an anti-inflammatory effect in the rest of the body. So I'm going to go on to the individual neurotransmitters in a moment, but for example, cold exposure can be a hormetic stressor. And research has shown that 10 to 15 minutes of cold exposure can increase dopamine by 250 times your baseline level. So Obviously, with hormetic stresses, we need to be careful not to do too much. And we also, if we do too little, it's not as effective. But if I'm working with a client and we do an organic acids test and I see that their dopamine is coming up a little bit on the low side, I'm not going to give them like another expensive dopamine supplement to take and make them really worried about it. But I'm probably going to say, how do you feel about cold showers? Is there somewhere you can do a cold plunge? For example, I go swimming in the ocean or even this time of year, it's um, December right now when I'm recording this, could you just go walk outside with a little bit less clothing on and get a little bit chilly? So there's lots of ways we can expose ourselves to cold and it's a free way you can massively increase your dopamine. So um, that's what I mean by using hormetic stresses. Hormetic stresses strengthen the brain. They're anti-inflammatory for the body. They build capacity within the nervous system. And a more regulated nervous system is probably also going to contribute to healthier neurotransmitter production, as is sleep, as is stress management. So again, you can listen to the nervous system episode for stress management. You can listen to the sleep episode to find out more about optimizing your sleep. So really what I've said so far is a lot of the principles I've covered in other episodes. 
So now let's go into neurotransmitters specifically. And neurotransmitters are basically just messenger chemicals in the brain. They convey messages and different neurotransmitters play different roles. So start with serotonin. Serotonin has a role in the body of influencing learning, memory. It's mostly known for its influence on happiness. So people with low serotonin may feel depressed. And it can also play a role in regulating body temperature, sleep, as well as sexual behavior and hunger. So when someone has low serotonin, it can be associated with anxiety, carbohydrate cravings, difficulty sleeping, and low mood. And so again here, just thinking about testing is another reason why I don't do testing with my clients is I'm also just not sure how reliable these tests really are. But when we practice functional medicine, we don't just look at test results. We look at the client history. We look at the client's symptoms. We look at the client test results. And then we also try interventions with the client and see if those interventions improve their symptoms. So there's four pillars, the history, the symptoms, the test results, and the response to interventions. And all of those are equally important. So if I had a client who was experiencing a lot of anxiety, carbohydrate cravings, difficulty sleeping, low mood, obviously there's a lot of reasons why they could be feeling like that. But that might be somebody who possibly has low serotonin. But here's the catch. And again, this is referring back to an episode which I've already done. But when I talked about the cell danger response, so the cell danger response being the universal response to threat, there are biochemical changes that happen in the body when the body feels under threat. And some of those changes are to create what is known as a sickness behavior. So sickness behavior has multiple different um, expressions, shall I say, but one of those is social withdrawal, low levels of motivation. And there's a protective benefit to sickness behavior that if you're not motivated to go out and socialize, you're less likely to spread your infection to somebody else. So if we think of this model of the cell danger response in the context of chronic illness, if you are stuck in a CDR1, in a cell danger response 1, and you're exhibiting sickness behavior, your serotonin and your dopamine levels may be impacted because there's going to be inflammation in the body. There's probably going to be inflammation in the brain. That's going to affect the serotonin production. Because we know from the cell danger response that there's a change in tryptophan metabolism. So tryptophan usually makes serotonin, but when there's inflammation, when there's high levels of stress in the body, we can see an upregulation in a specific enzyme which takes that tryptophan. And instead of making serotonin and melatonin, it makes kynurenin and quinolinic acid and it's believed that these two compounds can be partly responsible for the sickness behavior. Additionally, serotonin inhibits the sympathetic nervous system. 
And so the sympathetic nervous system needs to be active when there's a threat in the body. It's fight or flight. And yes, sometimes the threat is outside of the body, but sometimes the threat is inside of the body, which means that we need to have an active sympathetic nervous system. And so if we're making too much serotonin, that's going to inhibit the necessary fight or flight response. So it would make sense that in a CDR1, we would try to reduce serotonin production by sending tryptophan down a different pathway to kynurenin and quinolinic acid because that's necessary for the body to do what it needs to do to resolve the threat, move to CDR2, move to CDR3. So we need to argue here that if we're seeing changes in neurotransmitters, is it really appropriate to just give some 5-HTP or just give extra tyrosine, for example, to boost dopamine? Or is it actually this understanding that the body is trying to do something that it believes that it needs to do in your best interest to resolve the perceived or real threat? And we kind of just don't want to mess with that. So this is where I come back to this idea of, do we really need to be addressing these neurotransmitters or do we need to zoom out, look at the bigger picture and ask what is really going on and what type of support does the body need? The body needs to feel safe enough to heal. And when there's enough safety, there'll be enough healing. And so sometimes we need to help the body by you know, removing a parasite from the gut or detoxing molds or doing some antiviral protocol. But sometimes we also just need to help the body by learning how to support our nervous system so that the body can feel safe enough to heal. And in some people, it's one, in some people, it's the other, and in some people, it's both. Each person is different. So we could give 5-HTP for serotonin. I've seen clients feel worse when we give 5-HTP because it's just creating more activation of the immune system. I've seen clients feel nothing when they take 5-HTP and I've seen clients say it really helps them sleep. So we don't know until we try. But what I would say is if you're going to try, expect the worst so that if you do feel bad, you don't panic, you can just stop taking it. And if nothing happens, you maybe don't take it. And if it helps you, fantastic. So that is serotonin. The next one is dopamine. So dopamine plays a role in movement, in memory, in pleasure reward, and probably what it's also mostly known for is motivation. A drop in dopamine may be associated with lack of motivation, feelings of low self-worth and hopelessness, loss of one's temper, bursts of anger for no reason, or in response to a minor stress. If you read all of those symptoms, one of the things that comes to mind for me is lack of motivation, feelings of low self-worth, hopelessness. That sounds to me like a freeze response in the nervous system. Loss of temper, bursts of anger with no apparent reason. That sounds like nervous system dysregulation. So again, do we need to give supplements for dopamine or do we need more support for the body, more support for the nervous system? I don't know the answer in your specific case, but I'm just making suggestions here. 
And as you know, if you did want more dopamine, you can always do your cold water exposure. So as I've said already, 10 to 15 minutes of cold water exposure or just cold exposure can increase dopamine from its baseline by 250 times. Everybody has the ability to turn their shower down cold for a couple of minutes. You can have a cold bath or a cold plunge in a local cold body of water. Obviously, be safe, go with friends who can look after you, or even just go for a little walk outside in the cold and, you know, take off a few layers. So the next neurotransmitter is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine or acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that carries signals between brain cells. It is very important for memory, muscle, movement, attention span, learning, arousal, motivation, and REM sleep. A drop in acetylcholine activity is very important as it's often responsible for cognitive decline. And especially in women with menopause, once, once estrogen has become low, it's something we kind of want to watch out for. So symptoms of impaired acetylcholine activity includes loss of visual and photographic memory, loss of verbal memory, memory lapses, impaired creativity, difficulty calculating numbers, recognizing faces and objects, difficulty with directions and spatial orientation, and slow mental responsiveness. So these are obviously quite extreme symptoms because they are many of the symptoms of cognitive decline. So we do want to consider the role of neuroinflammation in cognitive decline. And, you know, if somebody was displaying all of these symptoms, I would definitely recommend that they see their doctor and see a specialist. But things that we could think about in terms of supporting them is make sure that the diet is choline rich. So, for example, foods such as egg yolk, liver, beef, tofu, nuts, cream, and fatty cheeses, obviously, if someone is um, dairy tolerant. And we also want to consider that bigger picture of neuroinflammation. How do we support the brain as a whole? Then the final neurotransmitter is GABA. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, which means that it can block or inhibit certain signals in the brain. And this promotes feelings of calm, or it can help promote feelings of calm. So low levels of GABA are associated with anxiety, or feelings of panic, a sense of dread, feelings of inner tension and excitability, and feelings of overwhelm for no reason, a restless mind, disorganized attention, and worrying about things that you never even thought of before. So again, when I read this list, I think... That sounds like somebody who is oscillating probably between fight, flight, and freeze. So moving from sympathetic nervous system activation to the dorsal nervous system or the dorsal vagal activation, so the parasympathetic nervous system. So we can give supplements to support the calming. And I think this is actually where I do see a lot of benefit with supplements in practice, so supplements that can be helpful are things like valerian root, passionflower, L-theanine, P5P, which is a vitamin B6, magnesium, zinc, manganese, and glycine. There is a supplement that I like to take from time to time. It's called Feel, or the brand is Feel, and it's a sleep supplement. And it's got a really nice balance of magnesium, glycine, passionflower, 
I think it's got some L-theanine in as well. So that's a really great one to take. I also like the Viridian L-theanine and lemon balm. I take it quite often myself and I also recommend it to clients who are quite anxious. And it is something that really does help to take the edge off pretty quick. That being said, we want to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. And so we want to support the nervous system for the longer term balance. And we also might want to look at the gut. Sometimes there can be a lot of these sort of more mood-based symptoms when there is an infection in the gut. So a stool test could potentially be helpful. So that brings me to the end of this discussion today on supporting neurotransmitters. I've listed obviously some symptoms and some supplements, but just to remember that the best foundations are going to be those which support the brain and those which support the gut. So the supplements can be helpful. Sometimes it's a quick fix or a quick win in the short term, but we really want to think about that bigger picture of lifestyle change, dietary change, supporting the nervous system, getting rid of things which could be triggering the immune and nervous system and really taking a bigger, broader focus on healing.